God, as we come to your word now, would you teach us afresh? Would you remind us of who you are and who we are in you? And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? Amen. I have this slight fear that every time I get up here, there's a synchronized shake of the heads as you all think, how did we end up with him? And actually, because it ties in quite well with the sermon, I'm going to share how you actually did end up with me. Um, you'll probably still ask yourself that question, but at least this will give you a very literal answer. So about five years ago, uh, as some of you will know, uh, I pretty unexpectedly sensed that God was leading me towards uh, full-time ministry. And so to cut a long story short, I started uh, looking for a church internship to explore that. And in that process, uh, I don't think I have experienced a clearer example of God's hand in what would normally be totally unnoteworthy. See, I must have visited about eight or nine churches, none of which were Ravenhill. And in fact, I'd never even heard of here before. Uh, but one evening, uh, I was checking out another church in Belfast, imagine, uh, and I was actually um, very close to taking the internship there. And as I got in my car to go back home to Kilkeel, I really needed a pee. I can hear yourself asking, how did we end up with him again? Um, but in typical Scott fashion as well, I was too awkward to go back into this church and to ask where the toilets were. And so I had a number of friends living in Belfast at the time, and so I got in contact with one of them to see if I could stop at his house. And he replied straight away, so I thought, brilliant, we're in business. So I got to his house, I used the bathroom, and I got chatting to one of his housemates. And his housemate was asking me what my plans were, and so I explained about this internship hunt which was going on and his eyes lit up, and I thought, oh dear. Because it just so happened that his assistant minister from Hamilton Road had messaged him to say that he was looking for an intern in this new church that he was at. And now, to be honest, when I heard that it was a Presbyterian church, I'm not gonna lie, I told him, no thank you. <laughs> Maybe I'm not really allowed to confess stuff like that in the Presbyterian pulpit, but here we are. But he kept insisting anyway that he was going to pass my name on, to which I just continued to give him some firm news. And at the end of it, well, he passed my name to, on to Marty anyway. And so begrudgingly then, a couple of days later, I answered the phone call from Marty. Uh, I then ended up having a couple of meetings with him. Uh, I had my view changed on Presbyterians when I came here, so that was a win from you guys. Uh, and then on your guys, on, on the end of you guys, um, there seemed to be some kind of transfer of interns that happened. There was an intern set to be here, and then um, there was a last-minute transfer uh, somewhere in that process, and oh, what could have been for you guys, <laughs> but it wasn't. Uh, and so why do I share all of this? Why do I share any of it? Well, because the whole thing basically stemmed from me needing a pee. I had no knowledge of Ravenhill. I had no reason to message that friend in particular, I could have just stopped at a toilet in McDonald's or something on the way home. I had no plans to see that guy, and I would certainly no plans to see his housemate. He'd no reason to be so insistent on passing my name on, and yet all of these events contributed to me receiving one of the greatest blessings that I have in this church family. 
these seemingly random events directed by the sovereign hand of God. And I think that's what we see here in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. So a quick recap. Where are we in the big story of this book? Well, after the ark gets stolen by the Philistines, God single-handedly returns it through sending plagues on the Philistines and through making the statues of their god Dagon bow before him. And then in chapter 7 of the book, uh, God defeats the Philistines in the battle uh, on behalf of the Israelites. And yet despite this, what did we see last week in chapter 8? But the Israelites coming to Samuel and asking for a king like all of the other nations. To which God then basically replies, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if that's what they want, give them what they want. But don't do it without warning them that these kings will take and take and take. And their response, well, verse 19 of chapter 8, they say, no, we want a king over us. And so here we are in this transition of leadership between Samuel the prophet and then Saul, their first king. And what an introduction he gets. We've just read that the people want the king, and so then whenever we read in verse 1, keep your Bibles open if you have them there, we read in verse 1 that there was a Benjamite. Well, we know exactly where this is going, don't we? And it all starts with some background with his family. Verse 1, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, or a man of wealth, whose name was Kish. And this wealthy man, Kish, well, verse 2, he has a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. And you can imagine the Israelites, they're reading his personal statement saying, oh, this is our guy, isn't it? A wealthy, upbringing, tall, strapping guy. I mean, when they go into battle, they want someone impressive at the head, don't they? They're thinking, what more could we ask for? See, despite Samuel's godly leadership over these people, the people didn't care at all about godliness. As long as he looks the part, as long as his headshot looks good on the website, well, that's what they're looking for. And now, I won't dwell on this, but as we look for leaders in all the areas of church ministry, would you pray that we would be discerning? And that we would prioritize godliness more than enthusiasm or strategy or impressiveness. Because while these things aren't bad in themselves, they're only impactful in Christian leadership if they're marked by godliness as well. If they have fruit hanging on them. The world, it draws us into ideas of what we should applaud. But let us take the warning from this passage not to be distracted by impressive appearances. Now, what happens next in the story is just an absolutely bizarre sequence of events. See, in verse 3, we move from some character introductions to finding out then that the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. Like, what on earth? You can imagine my face as I read this the first time and realized that I was going to be preaching on some lost donkeys. And you can imagine the faces of my colleagues as I tried to explain it to them as well. They're not even Christians either, so they're like, what are you talking about? But anyway, Saul, he takes a servant to go with him, to go and find these donkeys, well, because they're valuable. And they search all over the place for them, in places you can barely pronounce, and they can't find them. And so Saul and the servant, they stop for a minute, and Saul says, we probably 
better head back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and he'll start worrying about us. We've been away a while. We should probably go back and, and let him know that we're okay. In verse six then, the servant replied, look, in this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he'll tell us what way to take. And now, we're not told who it is at this point, but anyway, they, go, they decide to go to this man of God. And Saul stops for a second and he's like, hold on, I don't actually have anything to give this man of God as a gift. But it just so happened that the servant has a quarter of a shekel of silver. And so they bring it on their way to see this man of God. And they're on the way, and they just so happen then to bump into some women in verse 11, as you'll see. And they ask, and I like this line, is the seer here? Because it rhymes. So they go and they ask, is the seer here? This man of God, this prophet who speaks God's words, is he here? And the women reply, you know, as a matter of fact, he is. He's just come to our town today because the people are making a sacrifice up there. And so Saul and his servant, they go into the town, and the first man that they ask about the seer, he replies, verse 19, I am the seer. And you can sort of imagine them saying, oh, oh, yes, 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 of course you are. I, th I thought it was you. And this seer, Samuel, he tells Saul and his servant to join him for a meal up where they're doing this sacrifice. And he says, oh, by the way, your donkeys have been found. What? I didn't mention any donkeys. Who told him about the donkeys? Of course, Saul isn't aware of what we know at this point as the readers, that in verse 15 and 16, that God had actually already revealed to Samuel that he was going to send a man from the land of Benjamin and that he should be anointed as their leader. And in verse 17, that as Samuel caught a glimpse of Saul, that God said to him, this is the man that I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Do you see what's happening in this story? After such an impressive introduction to Saul in verse one and two, why would the writer start talking about lost donkeys in verse three? It seems like a total tangent, doesn't it? And why would he mention these details like the gift? Samuel, who's from this really wealthy family, doesn't have a thing to offer, and yet the servant of all people happens to have a spare coin in his pocket. Why mention that? And why mention these unnamed girls who were out collecting water who they just happened to bump into? These girls who'll never be mentioned again in the whole Bible. And why, when they're not even given names, would they give the details of what they say in verse 12? That he's just come to our town today. In other words, he's not usually here. And why then, as they enter the gates, would the first person that they meet be the very man that they're looking for. How unlikely is that? But the answer to all of these questions is that they are one of the clearest displays that we see in the Bible of God's sovereignty, of God weaving together the seemingly random and obscure events of life and then revealing to, this, to us this incredible tapestry of his sovereign plan. And then just to prove that Saul hasn't landed himself king as a result of good fortune, we get the beginning of chapter 10. And there Samuel tells Saul of three signs that are going to happen 
which will affirm that this is God's anointing happening. First in verse 2, where he'll meet two men at Rachel's tomb, who will tell him, without him asking actually, that the donkeys have been found. And then second then, in verse 3 of chapter 10, he'll go to the tree of Tabor, where he'll be met by three guys. One of the guys will have three goats, one of the guys will have three loaves, and the other is going to have a skin of wine. You can tell God and Samuel aren't in the, in the business of giving wishy-washy signs, sure they're not. I'd be saying, you'll maybe meet a man with a beard along the way or something. But no, three men, three goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. And not only that, verse 4, they will offer you two of the loaves. They're keeping the wine, but they'll specifically give you two of the three loaves. And then finally, the third sign, it says, you will, you'll go to Gibeah of God, this is verse 5, where there's a Philistine outpost, and as you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. That is not the Saul that we're introduced to. And then we get it all in real time in verses 9 to 10. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all of these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. There should be no doubt after all of these things that God is indeed sovereign over the donkeys that he is this great conductor orchestrating the whole choir of his world, that every alto or tenor who comes in, they come in to join the harmony of his song. And what's even more amazing is that every person who comes in comes in under no restraint, no constraint. There was no constraint on the mind of Saul's servant when he suggested to go and see the seer. There was no constraint in the minds of these women as they directed them. And as one commentator put it, every one of these events fell out freely and naturally. Yet all were necessary links in the chain of God's purposes. From God's point of view, they were necessary. From man's point of view, they were casual. Now the application here is twofold really. First, in what we learn about God, and second, then, in what we learn about man. In relation to God, we see just how surely, and yet sometimes how quietly and subtly, he achieves his purposes. It can be easy sometimes to look at life and see it just as ordinary and think, well, it just happens by itself. And yet, whether we know about it or not, each and every person partakes in this big plan of God's. Whether they oppose him or follow him, whether they act in evil or good, all of these things will be worked together in the accomplishment of God's plans. By means of even the most insignificant events, things are moving towards the consummation of God's plan for all of history. When we will shout, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And while there's great challenge here for those who don't follow Jesus to, to stop resisting, there's, of course, great comfort for Christians because we know from Romans 8:28 that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This grand plan 
which every single thing of this world feeds into, involves our ultimate good of being made into the likeness of Jesus. And to bring us to that final day where we'll join the praises of heaven and we'll see our Savior face to face. Can I encourage you tonight or sometime this week to look back over the significant times in your life and to see how God has used them for your good. To see those moments where you've ended up in a church like this because you just needed a pee. To see those moments of real difficulty in those just how close God held you and how strong an anchor you find him to be. The circumstances that you find yourself in are no surprise to God. He is sovereign over even the donkeys. And now two much shorter points to finish. And this one I've called insignificant to insignificance. We're introduced to Saul as this really impressive character at the start, aren't we? This really impressive character that the Israelites would just love to have as their leader. But as Saul and his servant come to the end of their search for the donkeys, who is it that, they, that suggests that they should ask the prophet? Have a look at verse 6. It's a servant, isn't it? Saul doesn't actually seem to have any knowledge of this guy, Samuel. And then who actually has the gift to give this prophet? Again, it's the servant. And so time and time again, we see these unnamed characters playing a vital role in the big story of God's plan. And it made me think of something Sinclair Ferguson said recently. It was about the people who had welcomed him into church for the first time and the people who had invited him along to go to Scripture Union. The people who did seemingly small things and yet had some of the most profound impacts on his life. And he said something which really stuck with me. That when we think of important people in the Christian sphere, we look at the people who can be found all over YouTube, don't we? And yet what we might see in glory is the reversal of how we might think it really is. The humble, obedient servants who few knew their name will be first. The insignificant brought into significance. And now I said at the uh, end of the last point how the application was twofold in relation to God and man. But I mainly spoke about that from God's end. Yes, I noticed, I hear you say. Uh, but So yes, in one sense God is sovereign and he predestines. That's true, that is right and that is true, but we still have a part to play in that, don't we? And in that sense, we're brought into significance as well because he lets us be part of that big plan. And how we do that really matters then. See, one of the beauties of this doctrine is that in God's sovereignty, we don't become robots who are void of responsibility. And we maybe see that clearest when we ask the question, well, was it God or was it man who sent Jesus to the cross? I've heard that question asked before. Because the answer to that question is both. God made it come about to achieve the only means of salvation. But on the other hand, the religious people accused him. The crowd shouted, crucify him. And when they had the chance to free the innocent, well, they chose a guilty man, a criminal, to be released instead. And so we recognize that we have a part to play. And I want to challenge us all to ask ourselves, are we like the servant here in this story? 
whose mind was directed towards God for guidance. People who in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let our requests be known to God. What a beautiful thing it is for our words and our actions to actually have meaning. And Proverbs 3, 6 helps us steward that well. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Finally, the king anointed but not acclaimed. In verse 21, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but Saul asks some questions to Samuel. And Samuel actually doesn't really answer them at all. Instead, he just directs him to this feast, and he served a leg which was set aside, a bit like what they did for the priests who were anointed in Leviticus. But it makes us wonder then, why didn't he not just answer the question? Whenever he said them straight to his face, why did he not answer the questions? And well, because this wasn't going to be a public anointing. In fact, in verse 27 of chapter 9, Samuel says to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us, but you stay here a while so that I may give you a message from God. And surely enough then, it all becomes clear to Samuel in chapter 10, verse 1, when Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you leader over his, over his inheritance? This anointing is done in private much like the anointing of their next king, David, as well. And what we see in this unfolding is that for Israel's kings, being anointed and being publicly acclaimed as king were not the same event. So it shouldn't necessarily surprise us then if God's ultimate king is anointed without being acclaimed as king. See, in the baptism of Jesus, God uses this language of kingship in his anointing. And yet, as I pointed out already, Jesus was not acknowledged as king. In fact, he was despised and rejected. In our passage, Saul's journey sees him quite literally ascend to the throne. In verse 11, it says, he went up to the hill. Verse 14, up to the town. Verse 19, up ahead of me to the high place. And again, we find the fulfillment of this in Jesus this time at his ascension, when he ascends through the clouds into heaven to be acclaimed as king. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, we are assured that following his ascension, God has seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And why did he do that? Well, verse 22 God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For what? For the church. For us. What a mind-blowing implication of his kingship this is. He rules the course of history for his church. So consider again the question that Andy gave us last week. Do I acclaim Jesus as king in every area of my life? Do I show it through my conduct? Do I tell it to my, con to my, to my colleagues? Do I acclaim him as king? And finally, as we face trials and difficulties, as we maybe face some discouragements, would we remember that Christ rules all things for the church? As we face disappointments as a congregation, 
as we maybe wonder how a little church of our size could make any difference in this community. As we look at our efforts to share Christ and maybe think that they are going nowhere, can I encourage you, don't give up. Because Christ rules all things for his church. We are on the winning side. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are sovereign over all and that you promise to work all things together for our good and for your glory. That you use the most insignificant of events and even the most difficult circumstances in that promise. And thank you that we get to be part of your bigger plan. That you've placed each of us wherever we are for a reason. But Lord, we recognize we very much need your wisdom as we navigate that responsibility. So turn our hearts back to you continually. Help us to be people who acknowledge you in all our ways and who trust that you will make our path straight. Let us run this race with endurance and run with you in mind, Jesus, the one who reigns in heaven for your church. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.